And the message today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. Now, we are uh, in this series on Lent, uh, weak made strong, the weakness that we experience in this world because the world has been so broken because of sin. Uh, that's what we've been looking at the past few weeks. And this is an incredible passage, one of the the, the, the maybe greatest passages in the Old Testament that you can think of that just reveals how broken we are as humanity, how broken we are. And you may be familiar with this passage, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, and we're glad that you're here, you're welcome here. Maybe you've learned about this um, as a child, or you've heard about the story of the golden calf. So we're going to be looking at that today, verses 1 through 6. Let me, let me read this first here. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, now Moses had gone up on the mountain to meet with God for 40 days, and at a certain point, we don't know exactly when, but at a certain point, the people were like, we don't know if Mo is coming back. <laughs> What's going on here? Is he gone? Did he get lost? Did he just bail on us? Did he kind of go up the mountain and then just ran down the other side and just ran for it, went back to his father-in-law Jethro? We don't know. We don't know. But they saw that Moses was slow in coming down from the mountain. Probably he'd been up there at least a few weeks. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who was basically second in command, and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, um, maybe, you know, if you're not familiar with this passage, maybe it's kind of coming back to you if you've heard about this before, but this is the story of the golden calf, a super famous story from the Bible, from the Old Testament, and boy, does it illustrate our brokenness. So what's going on here? Basically, the people disobeyed God. Uh, they had just received the Ten Commandments from God. So they had just come out of slavery in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, did all that. They're out in the desert. God gave them the Ten Commandments and His commands and many other commands. And this is all very fresh, just happened recently. And then the people right away get up, set themselves to start breaking these commandments of God. What commandment did they break? Well, in Exodus chapter 20, 12 chapters earlier, God had said to them in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them 
or serve them. God had just said this, don't make an idol. Don't make a statue. Don't make an, a, a carving, whether it's out of wood or stone or silver or gold or anything. Just don't do it. Don't make an image and bow down to it and worship it. Don't do it. And what did the people do? Man, we don't know where this Moses went. Aaron, get up. Make us a God that we can see, that we can touch. Make, make us a God that will lead us. And Aaron gets up and does this. Now, lest we think that this doesn't have much to do with us today, you know, I don't know about you, I don't have a golden bull in my house, and I, I, don't, I don't struggle with this issue of making cast metal images and worshiping them, but this is super relevant for us because Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, talking about this very passage, he said, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And now, referring to Exodus 32, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Direct quotation out of Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. And Paul is saying that stuff happened, and lest we think it has nothing to do with us, no, we are to take that as a very important example for us of what we should not do and how we should live. So this is very, very pertinent for us. This is very, very relevant for us. So what I want to talk about is a few things. Basically this. Why did they break God's commandment? And what was the result of doing so? Why did they break God's commandment? And what was the result of doing so? And I'm going to break this down into three points. I'm going to go through this, this two-part thing, why they broke the commandment and what the result was. I'm going to break it down into a kind of a three-part movement here. And the first movement is this. First point is this, distrust. This is why the people broke this commandment and made this idol. It was because of distrust. They didn't trust God to lead them. It says, going back to verse 1 again, when they saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they said, oh my gosh, where's our leader? Where's the guy who came into Egypt to get us and led us through the Red Sea and had the staff and, and told us to, that there's going to be food on the ground the next day like manna and all that stuff. Where'd he go? He's gone. And they started getting anxious about this. He delayed. He didn't come back down. And as a result of this, they said, Aaron, we want, basically what they were saying was, we want a God that we can see. We want somebody that we can trust. We want something tangible there to lead us. That's what we want. We don't see Moses. We don't know where he is. So make us a God that we can see. Now, if, if you think about this distrust, it's crazy, right? I mean, God had already brought 10 plagues upon Egypt. God had split the Red Sea. God had been giving them manna in the desert, giving them water to drink out there. God had been doing all of these things, yet they still distrusted in God because now 
there was no leader that they could see. So they said, make us an idol that we can see that will lead us. They were not willing to trust a God that they could not see. Now, but, you know, when we think about this, why was God so against them making a carved image or a statue that represented him? Why was he so against that? I mean, if, if my kids said to me, Dad, we want to make a bust of you out of marble because when you travel, we miss you. And when you go, if you go on a mission trip, we miss you. And we, whenever you're gone, we want to take out that bust and we just want to look at it adoringly and come over and give it a kiss on the cheek because we're thinking about you. It, we want to remember you. Like what's, what's so bad about that, right? If, if my kids said that to me, I'd say, yeah, sure, sure. As long as that butt, you know, it's good looking and it gets my features and everything. Yeah, why not? Go ahead. Do that. Have fun. Why was God so against them making an idol, making a statue? Well, the reason is, it, it, there's multiple reasons, but I'll point out two main ones here. The first one is this. He wanted the people of Israel to worship him directly, to worship him directly, not to come and worship an idol, an image that represents him. Notice that in the tabernacle, when they make the Ark of the Covenant and the seat for God, they don't make a statue of God. There's no statue of God anywhere in there. They make a house for God, but they don't make an image of God. This is because God wants his people to worship him directly. He doesn't want them to worship an image of him. And now it's important to remember that this is what all the nations around the Israelites were doing. Back in Egypt, they had all these idols that they made, all these statues of gold and silver. Uh, the nations around them, worshiping Baal and Asherah. They made these images to worship these other gods as well. This is what all the nations around them did. And inevitably, what would happen was when these nations worshiped a god, a statue god, what they actually believed was that the statue had the presence of their god. It was a manifestation in some way. It became their god in a way. It became literally, some, in some way, their god was there. And God is saying, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you turning that image, that idol, into me. I want you to worship me directly. He also wanted the people to, to walk by faith and not by sight. He wanted them to trust in him rather than in an object or a thing. But the people always, what they tend to want is they want a God that they can see. In, in 1 Samuel, when the people wanted a king... And they said to Samuel, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They're saying, we want to be like everybody else. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't want a God that we can't see. Yeah, that's nice and all. But we also want a king that we can see that's going to ride a horse and take out a sword and say, charge. We want to trust in that. We want to be led by somebody that we can see. Now, earlier in that same chapter, God made it really clear. He said to Samuel, do it. He said, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. He said, go ahead, make a, get a king for them. 
a human king, and he says this, for they have not rejected you, because Samuel was a prophet, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They rejected God. They said, we, we're not willing to trust in an invisible God. We want to trust in something, someone that is tangible, that we can see. That was the temptation of idolatry. Turning God into something that they could see, that they could touch, and it gave them a sense of security, a sense of control, because there was a statue there. Now, we, we may look at that and say, oh, they're, they're so ridiculous. How could the Israelites not trust in God? I mean, after being able to cross the Red Sea, I would never do that. I mean, God literally split the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground. And then when the Pharaoh and his army tried to go through, the waters came down and drowned all of them. They're such fools. How can they possibly disobey God, not trust in him, and create this idol? But brothers and sisters, we struggle with the same thing. In Luke 16, there's the parable about Jesus told about Lazarus, who is in heaven, and the rich man who ended up in hell. And Lazarus says this, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Lazarus was saying, now there is a huge distance between me and you because you did not put your faith in God. And now you are in torment. Now you are in eternal punishment. And this chasm cannot be bridged. Nobody can cross to that side, and nobody from that side can cross to here. Brothers and sisters, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, God didn't help you to cross a body of water. God enabled you to do the truly impossible, to cross over from death into life, from separation into, from God into being his son and daughter. He has done something so much more impossible, if I could put it grammatically and correctly that way, so much more impossible than crossing the Red Sea. Yet we also struggle to trust God and to take him at his word and to trust in an invisible God. Jesus said, don't worry what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry. God will provide for you. But rather, instead, we trust in money. We trust in finances. God said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Don't, don't worry about trying to be recognized in this world. And we say, no, no, I want to be recognized in this world. I want to be successful and respected by people around me in this world because that's what really counts. We have a difficult time trusting God, what the invisible God says, even though a far greater chasm has been bridged for us. We distrust God. It's a struggle. It's real. The struggle is real. It's something that we can be tempted to do that all of us struggle with today. And I'm sure that every one of you here, including myself, we struggle with trusting God in some way. Now, what happens? Point two here. Distortion. This is what we do. When we distrust God, now, if you're a Christian and we distrust God, um, you know, we can't straight up just deny God. <laughs> like, yeah, God, I don't trust you, so I'm going to do my own thing. We, we, don't, we don't say that. We know better than that, right? Usually we try, to, we try to put on a good face. What do we end up doing? We end up distorting 
our worship of God like these Israelites. That's what we end up doing. What did the Israelites do? They don't want to trust God. So they end up doing what all the nations around them do, and they make an idol, something that they could see and put their trust in. Now, what do they do? What is their justification? How do they justify themselves in this? Well, let's look at this here. Going back here. They said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, my gosh. Apostasy. They've left Yahweh. They're not worshiping God anymore, and now they're worshiping Baal. Now they're worshiping Ra. Now they're worshiping Anubis. Now they're worshiping Asherah. They're worshiping somebody else. Wait, wait a second. Not exactly. Aaron, in verse 5, says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Yahweh. Not Baal, not Asherah, not Ra, not Isis. It's going to be a feast to the Lord. What is happening here? There is a weird mixture, a weird syncretism that is happening before our eyes in Exodus 32 right here. Now, before I move on, let me just clarify something here. A question may come up. Is, are we talking here about polytheism, like the worship of other gods that Israel is committing, or are we talking about idolatry? And now remember, idolatry means creating an image, right? And it could be for your God, but it's an image. Um, after all, the people said, these are your gods, O Israel. So it sounds like they're not talking about the Lord, right? They're talking about gods, plural, different kinds of gods. Now, now here's the thing. Um, we have to understand that the word gods there in the Bible is Elohim. So now that might be a big clue for a lot of us here, right? Elohim is plural, gods, but it's also a term used to talk about the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. So just because it's plural doesn't mean they're saying gods. They could very well be saying God singular. So what does it refer to? In fact, there's, there's no way to really know except by context. So here's a few things. Aaron said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So he brings up Yahweh. That makes it seem like, no, they're talking about the God of the Bible. Number two, Aaron made only one calf. He only made one. So if he was talking about multiple gods, that'd be weird if there was only one calf. Thirdly, here, Elohim refers, it could be multiple gods or it could be the God of the Bible because this was one of his titles. And in fact, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, later on, they quote this verse and they use it in the singular. This is your God who brought you out of, up out of Egypt, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. So they're referring back to Exodus 32 and they're interpreting it as only one God. So what's happening here is, um, I, I believe, that they're not worshiping other gods aside from Yahweh. No, they're, they're worshiping, quote-unquote worshiping, the God of Israel. It's still Yahweh. It's still the Lord. But the problem is they were distorting the worship of God. They were doing something that God told them not to do. But they tried to say, God, it's for you. 
It's still for Yahweh. Look at all the things that they did that, that seems so similar. After this, it says they built an altar. That's what the Bible says to do, build an altar for Yahweh, for the Lord. Um, Aaron said there's going to be a feast to the Lord. That's what the Bible says in the law. Three times a year, big feasts in, in Jerusalem later on, right? Come up and worship the, God with, uh, worship the Lord with feasts. And then thirdly, it says they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. So they did all the things that God had told them to do, except they worshiped an idol. It looked, brothers and sisters, it looked like the worship that God had prescribed, but it was really a farce. It was a farce. Now, distortion, and, and please, please follow me here. This is an especially dangerous temptation for Christians. If you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is a very dangerous thing because this is very, very tempting for us. We will not deny our relationship with Jesus. We will not say, I don't care about God. I refuse to trust in him. We won't say stuff like that, but we distort our relationship with God. How do we do that? Basically, I would sum it up like this. God says to us, don't do that. And we say, don't worry, God. I'm doing it for you. Let me say that again. God says, don't do that. We say, don't worry, God. I'm doing it for you. It looks like the worship of God. It looks like it's for God. But we're breaking his commandments all along the way. And that is a very, very tempting thing to do. It's a form of syncretism. It's a form of having your cake and eating it too. Say, no, I would never deny God. I would, oh, I'm going to break it, break his commandment. No, no, I'm doing it for him. And, and we're tempted to do this all the time. Before I went into the ministry, before I became a pastor, I worked in finance. Finance was my undergraduate major. And my goal in life was to make buku bucks, to make a lot of money, to make tons of money. I wanted to be a multimillionaire, have tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars. That was my goal. I was dead set on being rich. That was my goal. But then, as I was growing in my faith as a Christian, I came to realize that idolizing money, worshiping money, was not a good thing. <laughs> that we're not supposed to worship money. That we're supposed to trust God. That we're supposed to be generous. We're not supposed to have any other gods except for God alone. So what did I do? Well, I still wanted my God of money. I didn't want to let go of the idea of getting rich, the idea of being comfortable, the idea of having all the nice things in life. So what I started to do, what I started to say is that, well, you know, what I think God wants for me is God wants me to be a person that can fund the kingdom of God. He wants me to be rich so that I could take my money and spend millions of dollars building churches and, and supporting missionaries and doing all sorts of things for God and, 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 and being a sender of missionaries and all these different things. That's, that's what I started saying to myself. But really, what I was doing was I was trying to hold on to my worship of money. God said, don't do that. 
Don't make money your idol. I said, don't worry, God. I'm doing it for you. We do this in so many different ways, don't we? We can idolize our careers and our pursuit of worldly success, and we can baptize it in the name of seeking our calling. God, you've given me all these gifts and these talents, and and I just want to put them to good use, and, and I really want to be able to make an impact in this world. But deep down inside, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to be recognized and be successful in the eyes of this world. And we just want an excuse to be able to pursue that wholeheartedly without needing to surrender that to God, without needing to lay that down. I think we do that with our kids. We, we, we say, God, I just want my kid. I just want to love my kids really well. That's why I want to give them everything that they need, the best education and, and the best health care and the best experiences and the best after-school stuff. And, and I just, you know, it's a parent's duty to love my child. But really, what's going on deep inside is what the, the real message is, I want my child to never experience pain in this world and have everything that everybody else has. That's what I want for my child. Rather than a genuine desire to see them become like Christ, even if it means sacrifice or suffering or difficulty in this world. We do this with so many different things. The Bible makes clear that if you are a Christian, you should seek to marry somebody who is also a Christian. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Paul is saying, if you are a child of God, there is no way that you should marry somebody who is at war with God, an enemy with God. It just doesn't make sense. But I've had multiple people over my lifetime as a pastor who've come up to me, a Christian who's come to me and said, yeah, I know, but, but I'm the only Christian in this person's life. God may use me... <laughs> to reach this person for him, for the gospel. I'm like, God doesn't need you to do things in a disobedient way to the scriptures to accomplish his will. But we do that. God says, don't do that. We say, God, don't worry. I'm doing this for you. We do this all the time. Christians, we struggle with this, this syncretism. We won't flat out deny God, but we'll mix stuff in there. Don't do that. Don't worry, God. I'm doing it for you. The question is, are we truly worshiping God his way? Or are we, quote, unquote, worshiping God our own way? Distortion. Third and lastly here, Debauchery, three Ds. I had to do it. Now, debauchery, I don't just mean drunkenness. That's not what I'm talking about here. But when I say debauchery here, what I just mean is, is basically um, a, a, a wild type of, a type of living not for the Lord, a type of living for our flesh and for the things of this world. And, and 
that comes from here, from verse 6. It says, in the final verse that I read, when they offered these offerings, it says, the people sat down to eat and drink. So they're having this festival, right? They're offering sacrifices to the Lord, quote-unquote, to this golden calf, and then they eat of the sacrifices too. So they're having this festival. It says they sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to play. What does that mean, rose up to play? I mean, what, 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 playing what? Are we talking about like pickleball here? What, do we, what were they playing? It, this word here, rose up to play, this verb, it, it, um, it, it has a connotation of like, of like playing, but like playing that would happen at a frat party, playing, right? It could be translated revelry, but it's kind of like a, like a wild, wanton type of revelry here. Like frat party playing is, is the connotation here. Um, and in fact, uh, some theologians say that this word also has a connotation of sexuality as well, sexual immorality. Now, it doesn't say that anything is happening here in this huge festival in terms of sexuality. But if we go back to 1 Corinthians, the passage I read earlier, in these different examples of the ways that people were walking away from God, the next verse, verse 8, the second example Paul gives was of another festival. And it says in that one, what happened? We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That was another example, a different time in the book of Numbers where the people were also at a festival, and that festival ended up in a massive orgy. So there was a connection between this worship and idolatry and sexual immorality. Also, if we look at Genesis 26 here, um, when, when Isaac was uh, hanging out with uh, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and he was sojourning in that land, the word there for play, a, a variation of it, comes up there. And it says, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing. It's the same, it's a similar root word there as playing, laughing with his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. So if you remember this story, Isaac was afraid that, oh, well, Rebecca's very beautiful, and then the people of this city may kill me in order to get with my wife. So just tell everybody, tell everybody, Rebecca, that you're my sister. Now, it, it, now Abimelech looks out his window, and one day says he saw Isaac laughing with his wife, Rebecca. Did Abimelech come and say, why are you laughing with your wife? I mean, with, with, with your sister. How dare you? Nobody laughs in my kingdom. We are a somber place. And especially not with your sister. We don't do that here. No, no. Abimelech looked out his window and saw Isaac making out or doing something with his Rebecca. And he's at first like, oh, that's a sister. That's weird. And he said, wait a second. That's not his That's why he called her. He said, how could you say she's my sister? Because he saw them doing some hanky-panky stuff. It's like, get a tent, man. Um, Genesis 39, laugh here again. Now, this is the exact same verb as Exodus 32, when the people got up the plates. It's the same verb. 
this when Joseph was in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife was trying to sleep with Joseph and he kept refusing. Then she grabbed his cloak and he ran off and she had his cloak in his hand. And it says she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. It's like, what was happening there? It was like Joseph looked at her and said, your outfit's really mismatched today. <laughs> Look at you. You're so not color coordinated. Is that why Potiphar threw him in jail? No. It's because she was saying, he came in to laugh at me. He came in to play with me. He came in to try to do something, sexually assault me. There's a connotation there of that. Now, whether that was there specifically in, Ex in Exodus 32 or not, it's, it's, it's not the big de biggest deal. The point is, when it says they rose up to play, is things started getting wild there. It got fleshly. It got out of control. Things got out of hand. What's, what's the point here? The point is this, and this is the flow of the three points here. It's that we're called to live by the Spirit. But when we distrust God, when we say, I, 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 just, I just can't trust in your promises, God. I just can't trust in something that I can't see. I want things that I can see. I want money. I want people's applause. I want, I want control over my future. I want to trust myself. Whatever it may be, what ends up happening as a Christian is we begin to mix the spirit with the flesh, and it leads to distortion. God says, don't do that. We say, don't worry, God. I'm doing it for you. We distort the teachings of God. We begin to mix things together and live syncretistically. But inevitably, what happens when we do that is it leads down the road to debauchery and to living according to the flesh, to living a lukewarm Christian life, to living a life where we claim to worship God, but we worship just in the same way as the nations around us. We claim to be a Christian, but we live in ways that are no different from the people around us who don't know God. Our values are no different. Our values are the same. It leads down this road. Distort, this is why distortion, syncretism is so, so dangerous for us as Christians. How many of us, brothers and sisters, like verse 6 says, are just playing church right now? How many of us are walking in this syncretistic way in our relationship with God? And rather than taking him at his word, we're trying to do things our way, worship God our way. Moses, on the other hand, it says in Hebrews 11, and I'm going to close up here. It says, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I'm going to invite the worship team up at this time as we get ready to enter into worship. My question for you, brothers and sisters, is can we live in a way where we can see the invisible God? 
Brothers and sisters, we, we have the Holy Spirit literally residing within us. If you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Christ, we literally have the Holy Spirit residing within us, something that Moses could only imagine, something that the Old Testament prophets and saints longed to experience, but they didn't get to. But we do. And that Spirit offers us the power to trust in this invisible God. Not as we're waiting for Moses to come back down the mountain, but as we are waiting for Jesus to return in power once and for all. He has given us everything that we need to be able to wait with faith, with trust before God. And by the grace of God, we will do so faithfully. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters.